And if you've ever talked to my dad, you'll know why I'm a pastor or a preacher, because my dad likes to talk. And he has no problem talking and just getting to know people and making his presence known. And he'll go up to people and start conversations with him. And it's one of the things that we all love about my dad. My mom sometimes worries about what he's going to say. But he's just a friendly guy if you meet my dad. And some of the things that I've just been through in my relationship with my dad when I was a kid, I thought my dad could do anything. He could fix anything. He was there for my problems. He could make everything better. As I became a teenager, I started to think, I don't know if dad's cool anymore. I don't know if he's able to do what I thought he used to be able to do. And then when I became an adult, I realized, you know what? My dad's got some of this figured out. His finances, where to get your car fixed, all these things. So I'd call him and I'd be like, hey, what would you do if your car needed this done? Or what do you do when you're um, trying to fix this in your house? And so I've had a relationship with my dad where I've realized that he does have a lot of wisdom. One of the other things I'm blessed about in my relationship with my father is that whenever I was in trouble, it wasn't, okay, what did you do now? Or there wasn't this sense of even disappointment. But he would always ask, are you okay? What do you need? Yes, I'll be there to help. And so I've had a good relationship with my earthly father. Some of us in the room haven't, and that's okay. Some of us had a distant father, a father that maybe didn't treat you like he should, that wasn't a good reflection of your heavenly father, And oftentimes what's been said is that the way your earthly father treated you is how you will view God, your heavenly father. Whether they were what they should be or whether they were maybe not what they should be, that's how you're going to view God the father. And it leads to some misconceptions about who God is. And as Christians, we face this. We are pressed up against these thoughts, people who have misconceptions about God. And I want to talk about a couple of these this morning as we get into our sermon. Some people think that God is all powerful, but he's unattached. This is called deism in a technical term, but that he created the world. He's in control, but that he's just not attached to the world. He kind of started it and just leaves the world to its destruction. This was a popular philosophy in the 1700s. This is becoming more popular today as I share the gospel with people, as I talk to people. They will tell me things like this. God created the world. He does have the power to do what he wants to do, but he doesn't seem to care about us. And we know that's not true. Some people think that God is a vindictive bully because of the circumstances in their life, because of the tragedies and trials they've been through. They say, yes, there is a God, but he's out to get me. That he doesn't love me, but that he's put all these bad circumstances into my life. Some people have a bit of an opposite approach. They think that God is loving, but lenient. That God almost gives in too much. That he's just going to let us do what we want to do. That one day we will stand before God. But even if we don't know him as Savior, he's just going to let us into heaven. He's going to let us go by. And we know that's not true as well. God is loving, yes, but he is also holy. He is also just. And then lastly, some people would say that God is good, but inconsistent. And I think this one especially comes from an earthly idea of God, that that people make God out to be like their parents who are good, 
But, but none of us as humans can be totally consistent. I've been a substitute teacher in different settings, and I've told people it is just almost impossible to be completely consistent with every kid. Just as a human, you almost can't be consistent all the way across the board. You can try to be, but many of us with our parents, we notice that they're good, that they have good intentions, but they're inconsistent with how they treat us. These ideas about God are popular, but they misrepresent who God really is, his nature. And so how do we understand God the Father? We start by looking at his word. This is what God has told us about himself. This is what God wants us to know. So as we begin Paul's letter to the Ephesians, last week we looked at the sermon as a whole, an overview What's the theme of Ephesians? What are the different reasons we should study Ephesians? The background. And today we're just going to look at three or four verses. Four verses, Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. And you say, that's not a lot of verses. Well, there's a lot that we need to talk about that's in these verses. And we're going to look at the person of God the Father. As Paul starts his letter to the Ephesians, he starts in a customary way in verses 1 and 2. And then he always gives thanks to the churches, usually, in his letter. If you read Philippians, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Here, he gives thanks to God. And what you're going to see in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, the passage that we're going to unpack over the next three weeks, this is one sentence in Greek. From verse 3 to verse 14, in Greek, it's one sentence. Now, in our English Bibles, it might have periods. And if you look at it in Greek, it's all connected to each other. If you were a grammar teacher, you'd say, Paul has a big run-on sentence, and that is grammatically incorrect. Well, it's inspired by God, so it is correct. And in this sentence, it's a praise to God who is three in one. We're going to see that God the Father is praised in verses three through six, and that's going to be our sermon today. Next week, we're going to see that Christ... (coughs) is praised in verses 7 through 12. It says in verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood. Whose blood? Jesus' blood. And then in verse 13, we in 14, we see that we're sealed with the Spirit. One God, three persons, each of them praised here in Ephesians. So as Paul offers this praise to God, who is three in one, we start by understanding who God the Father is. And I've already said, I think the theme of Ephesians is our identity in Christ. For us to understand who we are in Christ, we first need to understand who God is. And that might sound a little backwards, but the most important thing about you this morning is how you know and relate to your heavenly Father. Do you know him as a father? Are you his child? And for us to understand this is our identity in Christ, We need to know who God is, who Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit is. And that's what we're going to look at in each of the next three weeks. So what we want to see this morning is this. This is what Paul's getting at in verses 3 through 6 of chapter 1. Worship God the Father because of his spiritual blessings. Each person of the Trinity is being praised in chapter 1 and has a reason for why they should be praised. And God the Father's is this. He gives us spiritual blessings. So we're going to jump into reasons why we should worship God in a moment. But before we do that, I don't want to leave out verses 1 and 2. 
because we mentioned them last week, but they are important for us to look at. So just very briefly, let me give you just some notes on verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, Paul says he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. What does that mean? Paul is an apostle. He's one of the 12 apostles that are commissioned by Christ. We know that because of Judas's death, another one was chosen. Paul was specially commissioned by Christ on the road to Damascus. And he says it's by the will of God. What does that mean? Paul didn't just do this on his own. He's not just writing because he wants to. It was God's will for him to be in this position. He also says to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, we look at that word faithful. The word can either mean faithful or it can mean believers. I think it could be better translated as believers. And maybe your Bible says that. He's saying to the saints that tells us something about them. What does that tell us? The word saints means sanctified or set apart, holy. So it tells us that they're meant to be holy. They've been saved. Now they're separated by God. They're to be holy and set apart for him. And then believers who are faithful tells us something else, that they have faith in God. So these are two different identities that the Ephesians have. You're saints, so you're holy. You're believers, So you're faithful. This is going to be important as we look at Ephesians. And then lastly, he says in verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why am I making a big deal about this? He says this in almost every one of his letters. If you read Ephesians and you look, grace and peace are all over the book. Grace that we have is a gift from God. One commentator says grace is the gospel in one word. It's his unmerited favor. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. We're going to see over and over again in Ephesians that we're saved by grace to the praise of his glorious grace. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. We have grace because of the gospel. This is part of our identity. This is a major theme in Ephesians. But notice what else he says. In peace, grace is what causes our salvation. Peace is the result of our salvation. In Romans 5.1, Paul says, Therefore, we have been justified by faith. faith. We have peace with God. When we're unsaved, what do we have? Trouble, strife. Because we've been saved, we have peace with God. So those two things are major themes in Ephesians. Now, we get to verse 3. And what I want us to see this morning is why God is worthy of our worship. And the first thing we see is that he gives spiritual blessings. He gives spiritual blessings. Let's read verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. First of all, we see that the person being praised is God, the Father. That word blessed is an adjective describing God. If you were to really try to get specific at what Paul is saying, he would say, blessed is God. God is to be praised. It shows that he's deserving of our appreciation, that he's worthy of our praise. Now, God here, I think, refers to all three members of the Trinity, 
God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all three are worthy of our praise. And in the next verses, we're going to see why, as I've already mentioned. But here, he's specifically talking about God the Father. Where do we first hear about God the Father? It's in the Old Testament. He creates the world. He chooses Israel to be his people. He deals with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He makes Israel a nation and raises them up. He cares for humanity. He provides for his people. He creates, he sustains, he redeems. These are all things in the Old Testament that are true about God the Father, and that should influence how we view him now. But if you notice in the New Testament, we still know who God the Father is, yes, and he's still active But the focus becomes on Christ. This is who Christ is, the Son. This is what he's done for us. And so we want to look at why should God be praised in our New Testament understanding of him? We know what he has done in the Old Testament, yes. But what does he do now as God the Father that makes him worthy of praise? And we see here that he gives us spiritual blessings. God gives us spiritual blessings. And that's not to say that the son doesn't give us anything. He gives us salvation. And we can all be thankful for that. Yes, we're all thankful for what Christ has done for us. But God the Father gives us spiritual blessings. And as we talk about these things, it's important for us to understand how the Trinity works. It is one God, yes. But God the Father did not die for our sins. That's what Jesus did. Jesus does not seal us. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit does not plan our salvation. That's what God does. It's one God, but they work in harmony in three different ways. It's a beautiful thing. Now look at the gifts. We see the person who's God the Father. We next see the gifts that he gives. They're the spiritual blessings. Paul says he blesses us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. That word every could mean all, but what it's saying is everyone that we need, every spiritual blessing that we have has been given to us by God. This blessing is the same word that is used to bless God. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. That same idea. He's not praising us, but he's giving us something. He's giving us a gift, a blessing. Notice that this is past tense, that God has already given us these blessings. And notice that they're spiritual as well. What does it mean that they're spiritual? And why do we want to focus on that and care about that? It means they're not earthly. There's many blessings that God gives us that are natural in the world. Food, shelter, friendships, relationships. Those aren't spiritual blessings. Those are earthly blessings. And we're thankful for those things. And by the way, that's God just giving us above what we even need by giving us earthly blessings. But we want to talk about the spiritual blessings that God has given us. These are things fitting for heaven that are not of this world. He says he's given us these spiritual blessings where? In the heavenly places. This word is going to be used a couple different times in Ephesians. What is it talking about? Your Bible might just say in heaven or in the heavenlies. These are things meant for heaven. This is where they operate. They come from God in heaven. Heaven is God's 
realm where he is. It's an unseen realm of spiritual activity. As a reminder of what Paul is saying, he's saying, praise God that we have spiritual blessings that are not of this world, but they're things meant for heaven. God gives us spiritual blessings. One of the things we get to do in our study of Ephesians is we get to look at all the spiritual blessings that God has given us. And we're not just going to see them in chapter 1. We're going to see them in chapter 2. We're going to see them in chapter 3 as well. It's almost like a kid on Christmas. When you are a kid on Christmas, you see all the presents that have your name on it. And one by one, you start to unpack them. And you unpack them and you kind of look at what they are. And you either say thanks or you kind of roll your eyes, you know, because it's closed and you move on. But there comes a point as a kid where you step back and you say, this is all that I've gotten. It's all over. I've unwrapped everything. And you take a step back and you think, wow, I've really gotten a lot this Christmas. And for us as believers, we're going to go through and we're going to unpack every spiritual blessing. We're going to talk about all of these things throughout our study of Ephesians that God has done for us. But the point is this, that we take a step back and we look at all of them in Ephesians and we say, what a great God. And he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Now, you might be asking, what are these spiritual blessings that I keep talking about? Well, if you have a handout, it'll be a little bit more helpful to follow. You can grab one even as we leave this morning. But we see... Throughout chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, here are some spiritual blessings. In verse 4, we're going to talk about election, God choosing believers. And we'll explain more of that, what that means in verse 4. In verse 5, adoption, he has adopted us. In verse 7, we have redemption, he's redeemed us, he's brought us back. Also in verse 7, he's forgiven us, in him we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. In verse 11, we see that we have an inheritance with God because of our salvation. We have a glorious inheritance that we'll have in heaven with him. In verse 13, the Spirit seals our salvation. In verse 17, Paul prays that we would have a spirit of wisdom and enlightenment from God. And then in verse 18, we want to have this so that we may know what hope we have. One of the blessings we have is hope. We don't have to be discouraged. We can always have a future heavenly hope, which is a confidence. It's not wishing for something. It is knowing that something is going to happen. You go to chapter 2. We praise God because in verses 4 and 5, he's made us alive in Christ. He gives us a new life with him. In verse 6, after he's made us alive, he raises us up with him and he seats us in the heavenly places. We're seated with him in heaven. In verse 8 and 9 of chapter 2, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. God's grace is one of his blessings. We go deeper into chapter 2 in verse 13 and 16. Reconciliation. What does that mean? We have peace with God. We are not his enemies. God has made peace through Christ. It says, but now in Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. 
In verse 18, it says we have access to the Father. In verse 19, we have citizenship with him. You go into chapter 3, and it's this, it's this prayer from Paul. And chapter 3 of Ephesians is a little bit confusing. We'll dive deeper into it when we get into chapter 3. But we see that we have revelation of the mystery of God in verse 9, boldness and access in verse 12, and strength in verse 16. In verse 17, the presence of Christ. Now take a step back. We're going to look at all these. The point now is not to understand every term that I just mentioned. But it's for us to take a step back and say, look at what God the Father has given us in Christ. And ask yourself the question, what more do you need that you don't already have in your relationship with him? We start sometimes as just people, as believers, we can blame God for what we don't have. We don't have this. And oftentimes they're natural things of the world. But we don't realize all of the spiritual blessings given to us by God and how they're all ours in Christ. So the last thing I want to show you in verse 3 is that these come from Christ. It says he's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That prepositional phrase in Christ shows us the source. These come from where? Our relationship with Jesus Christ. This starts to tell us our identity. This phrase is going to be used over 30 times in Ephesians in Christ. What is important for us to understand about our identity, ourselves, who we are? It's those two words. We are in Christ. And because we're in Christ, we've been blessed by God. We have access to all of these things with him as the source So this morning, we should worship God the Father because of the good gifts he's given to us. Everything that we have that's valuable in our life, everything that we need spiritually comes from God. Many of us struggle with our identity with God the Father because we have an imperfect earthly father. But every time you struggle with that, you can know that you have a perfect and glorious heavenly father who loves you. How do you know that God loves you? Look at that list. All those things he's given you in Christ. We have nothing else that we need. Recognize that God is worthy of praise. What's the second reason that Paul gives us to worship God? We're going to see that God elects believers. And many times as this passage is talked about and explained, The focus becomes on verse 4, because verse 4 is a little bit controversial and confusing, and there's different opinions on it. Many people just want to stop at that phrase, he chose us in him. What does that mean? And the point isn't this action of election, even though we're going to talk about that and what it means. The point is that God is worthy of praise. And so we need to be careful, because this is a controversial topic that I'm going to talk about. And there's different opinions on it. But the point isn't to have a theological debate. The point is to worship God the Father for what he has done. We want to look at what is he saying here. We see that verb, even as he chose us. It means to pick out beforehand, to select something. Interestingly enough, it's actually an agricultural term. You're picking out the crops that you 
want. You're selecting them. We see a similar term later in verse 5. He predestined us. It means to cause something to happen beforehand. And so what we want to ask ourselves this morning is, how does this election take place? Does God decide the fate of those who would be saved before the foundation of the world? Is there any aspect of free will that goes into this plan of God in salvation? And what you'll notice if you've listened to me preach, even in Acts, I'll come across passages like this, and I want to affirm that this passage, I do believe, is telling us that God has a plan of salvation, that he has chosen us before the foundation of the world. That's what it says. And maybe if we're uncomfortable with that, we want to say, well, maybe he's talking about this or that. The truth is, this verse is saying, God chose us, selected us before the foundation of the world. What's interesting is there are other passages in scripture as well. And I ran across them in Acts where it says they repented, they believed, and they were saved. And it's more of this human responsibility aspect of salvation. And when I came across those passages, I had to say, why were they saved? Because they repented and they believed the gospel. So something we need to understand is that we're not going to understand each aspect of election. There's no possible way we could. God chooses believers before the foundation of the world to be saved. Yes, I think that's what this passage is saying. On the other side of things, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Is that true? Yes. How do those things work together? We're trying to figure it out, but we're not going to figure it out totally here on earth. Some people have different explanations. Some say that because God knows who will be saved, he's able to choose them. Maybe. Some people say that because God chose, he knows who's going to be saved. I think a little bit more of that saying. Some people say that God has this middle knowledge where he is electing and knowing at the same time. And they try to insert free will into that equation. There's a lot of different explanations for how this takes place. But what we want to understand is this, and you can disagree with me on this, that's okay. And somehow, in some way, God, before the foundation of the world, chose us in Christ. And sometimes that's not an encouraging thought. Sometimes it causes some doubt and discouragement. That this is actually meant to give us assurance. Because you've been chosen in Christ, no one can take you from the Father's hand. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, God certainly must have chosen me before I came into this world because he never would have done so afterwards. Meaning if God knew what I was going to be like later, which he does, there's no way. D.L. Moody says, those who have been saved are saved because God chose them before the foundation of the world. And those who are not saved are not so because they have not called upon the Lord for salvation. There's just two sides to this issue. God is sovereign, yes. Mankind, from a human responsibility standpoint, repents and believes the gospel, yes. How does it work together? I don't think we'll understand until heaven. And so I know this is a difficult concept, and we won't truly understand it in this life. But let me bring us back to the point of why he's saying this. God plans salvation. And if God has planned salvation, he is worthy of our praise.
When does this happen? We look at the timing of it. He chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world. It's before the earth was built, created. It's, as some people would call it, eternity past. You see how all the works of the Father are connected to the past. He chose us in the past. He has given us or blessed us with spiritual blessings in the past. This happened in the past. This was done before the earth had a foundation. God is eternal. He's our God. That song we sang, O God, our help in ages past. He's always been here. We want to see that this has a purpose. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. What does that mean? Many people, as they talk about election, they just focus on, okay, God chose who's going to be saved. That may be true, but that's not all he's doing. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world with a purpose that we would be what? Holy and blameless. God, when he planned salvation, did not desire us to stay the same. Many people emphasize in Christianity that you can come as you are to God. You can come in your sinful state. You can come with all of your baggage. And that is totally true. But God will not leave you like you are. God is going to expect you to change and to be transformed. That word holy, it's that same word that we saw earlier with saints. It means to be set apart, to be more like God, to have a holy condition. Blameless means to be without fault, to be morally pure with God. Now you'll notice there's a little bit of a tricky phrase at the end of verse 4. It says, period, in love, in my Bible. And it's a little bit hard for us to understand, what is he applying that to? Some people think it applies to, he chose us before the foundation of the world in love. I do think he did that in love. You, so a lot of Bibles, in my Bible, the ESV says, in love, he predestined us, almost lumping it in to verse 5. But I really think it is describing how we're holy and blameless before him. And I have a grammatical reason for that. Many times in Greek, the verb begins a sentence. So it'd be a little weird to have this phrase begin verse 5. So what I think Paul is saying is that he chose us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love. Now, what does that mean that we should be holy and blameless in love? It means that while you're being holy, being set apart from sin, while you're being blameless, trying not to have any fault for sin, you should also be loving as well. He's not just called us to try to be sanctified, but to not love others. He's called us to love as well. We can praise God for his plan of salvation. Do we understand fully what that plan entails? No. Can we still praise God for what he's done in salvation? God is the architect. He's planned it all out. Part of how we should respond is praising God, worshiping him. But how do we do that? Turn to Romans chapter 12 for just a moment. 
Paul's desire is that we should worship God. So how in Romans does he tell us to worship God? He says in verse 1 of chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What does it say? Holy and acceptable to God. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? It almost sounds like being holy and blameless, which is your spiritual worship. We praise God on Sundays when we sing about him, when we pray and we offer up praises to him. But we also praise God by being renewed, by being transformed, by being sanctified, by living a life that is worthy of being his child. In verse 2, it says, how do we do this? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. A continual growing in the knowledge of who God is. So as you ask yourself this morning, am I worshiping God the Father? Am I being changed? Am I being transformed? God has a plan for you that has spanned throughout all of time. And he wants you to be more like him. Holy and blameless and in love. We want to see in verse 5, God not only gives spiritual blessings, he not only elects believers, but he also adopts his children. God adopts his children. In verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. What does that mean? That phrase or that verb, he predestined us, means to set something beforehand, to put something in place, to determine And how does that relate to election? And I think it's showing us the process by how God started election. He chose us because he set things in motion beforehand. Now notice, what did he predestine us to be? In love, he predestined us for adoption. And that word adoption is a loaded word that Paul is using here to describe who we are in Christ. There's a lot of different contexts that Paul has for adoption in his life. In the Jewish sense, there wasn't really any Jewish laws about adoption. Interestingly enough, if you read throughout their legal code and throughout their laws in the Old Testament, they didn't really have a concept for it, except that God adopted Israel, that he chose Israel to be his people Paul's concept for adoption is really a Roman idea where a Roman wealthy person who had no children would adopt usually a son, a male son, to be his heir. And it was important for the men to have someone who would succeed them and be their heir and inherit their wealth and their positions so that the line would continue. How did this work? Usually a slave person would be adopted and for this to happen they would have to be sold into slavery three different times to that person and then finally after the third time the biological father had no rights to the son and this son was in sole possession of the roman citizen now the purpose or the motivation for adoption in roman times was political was financial. 
They needed to have an heir. They needed to have someone to succeed them. This was very important to their family legacy. What is God's purpose for adopting us? Is it because we're so valuable? Well, no, Paul says we were dead in trespasses and sins. What would motivate God to adopt people who he calls dead? Is it because we're so worth it in our sinful state? No, look at what it says. It says he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now that word purpose could mean purpose. Other translations, I think, translate it better to say, according to his good pleasure. What does that mean? God adopted us because he wanted to, because of his love, because this is who God is. He's a good God. He wanted to have us as children. Be careful of using the phrase, he needed to. God did not need to adopt us. There's nothing we add to God. He already has everything he needs. But he wanted to because he is a good God. And it's part of his good pleasure. And when he looked on us as sinful beings, he says, I'm going to adopt them because this is who I am. Adoption is a key theological theme in the New Testament. In Romans 8.15, it says, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Romans had this idea of slavery, even connected to adoption. They had to be sold into slavery three times. What's beautiful about our adoption by God is that we were bought from slavery. We now are set free in Christ. In Galatians 4, 5, it says to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In Romans 8, 23, it says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of bodies. The beautiful truth of adoption in the New Testament is that we have been adopted. If you're saved this morning, you've been adopted by God. Yes, but you have an inheritance. You have a future expectation of what you will receive when you're in heaven with him. This is what God has done for us. He adopted us who did not deserve this adoption. I've had several friends, like I said, who have been in the process of adoption. And each one of them, as I've talked to them about it, have said, they will have no problem looking at that child who is not their biological child and saying, I will treat them like they are my own. And that's what God does for us. We can praise God because we've been adopted by him. This is part of our identity. No matter your earthly father, what he's done for you, whether he was a good father, maybe not a good father, you have a heavenly father who has adopted you. So we praise him, we give him the glory, and we also do this, we live like his children. I've seen different parents at the store who have children and maybe they're running around and not doing what they're supposed to do. As God's child, we represent him in the world. And just like a disobedient child brings embarrassment to their parents when they're not behaving like they should when they're in public, 
For us as believers, we want to honor God the Father by living like his child. This doesn't mean that we have this outward conformity and no inward change. But think about when you're around people, what is my identity? I'm not just Lance anymore. I'm God's child. And because of that, I need to live like he wants me to. What would people think of my heavenly father if I don't live like his child? We lastly want to see this morning that God bestows grace. In verse 6, describing all of this in verses 3 through 5, Paul uses this phrase, to the praise of his glorious grace. We're going to see it again in verse 12, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is to be praised. But if you notice here in verse 6, it doesn't just say to the praise of his glory. It says to the praise of his glorious grace. And Paul wants to emphasize this idea here when talking about God the Father, that he gives us grace. As I mentioned earlier, one commentator said that grace is the gospel in one word. It is God freely giving us what we do not deserve in Christ. Paul says that God should be praised for giving us spiritual blessings, like we talked about, for his plan of salvation, choosing us before the foundation of the world, for adopting us as sons, but also for his grace, because he didn't have to. Do you recognize that this morning? You're not entitled to be a child of God this morning. He saved you when he didn't have to. It would have been totally righteous and just for God to not save any of us. We rejected him. He could have let us all go to our destruction. But in this conversation, we realize that we're sinners saved by grace, that God's given us what we do not deserve. We see in Titus 2.11, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. He describes this grace here in this verse by saying it is to the praise of God's glorious grace. Glory is the radiance of God, showing his infinite worth. We should do all things to the glory of God. Glory describes who God is. It's also we should give him glory as well. One commentator writes, God's ultimate purpose in election is that it would lead to his glory. He chose us. He planned salvation. He adopted us because of his good pleasure, yes, but also because it would bring him glory as well. So Paul says, because you've been saved, praise God for his glorious grace. Give him the glory that he deserves. Then at the end of verse 6, he kind of teases out what he's going to talk about in verses 7 through 12. To the praise of his glorious grace, talking about this grace, which he has blessed us, your Bible might say bestowed on us. It means to give a gift again in the beloved. God has given us his grace freely Through who? The beloved. Who is the beloved? Well, that name is used several times in scripture. Sometimes it refers to us, but we can't give ourselves salvation. 
But in verse 7 it says that the beloved is the one in whom we have redemption through his blood. It's Jesus. And that shows us something about the gospel. That God didn't sacrifice Christ on the cross because he didn't like him. No, God loved his son. He's called the beloved. There are few people called this in scripture, but it's so clearly a reference to Christ here. Many of us think about what it was like for Jesus to be on the cross as the father turned his face away. Think about what it was like for God the father who loved his son, who sent him to the earth, knowing that he was sinless to take on sin for us. And then as a father, what did he do? Turned his face away. And did not look on his son whom he sent to earth. This reminds us of the grace of God. That God loved his son. But even though he loved his son, still sent him to die for our sins and give us redemption. As we recognize this, that God has given us this grace. It so clearly shows us what Paul is saying in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is what? A gift from God. Paul says because God has planned salvation, he gave us his son who he loved in Christ to die for salvation. How could we think this comes from ourselves? How could we think we could earn our salvation? This so clearly comes as a gift from God the Father. We need to be reminded this morning that our salvation came at a cost. It was through the blood of Christ. As we reflect on these four verses this morning and who God is as our spiritual father who's given us blessings, we want to take some time and apply this. We want to think about questions of how we relate to the blessings of God and reflect on them. First of all, think about this morning, what has God given you? We talked about earlier, there's some people who live in this mindset that God is a vindictive bully, that they've gotten a bad rap from him. No, God is a loving father who in Christ has given us spiritual blessings. For those who are not saved, God desires to be in a relationship with you. One of the questions that comes up with election is, what if this person isn't chosen by God? That's not for us to know. That's never for us to know. That's never one of the things that is talked about. We can trust that those who are saved have been saved because not only they've been chosen by God, but also because they've repented and believed the gospel. From God's standpoint, he's always known. From our standpoint, it's anyone who would repent and believe in Christ. So this morning, think about the blessings that you have in Christ. When you become discouraged, when you become confused, meditate on what God has given you. Secondly, think about how do you worship God? How do you worship God? Not just here at church when we're singing or in prayer, but do you worship God with your life? Do you worship him with a grateful heart? Do you worship him with a holy and transformed life? Do you act like a child of God? Do you live in such a way that others know that God is your father? Do you live thankful to the God who saved you and has made you his child? And then lastly, is God your father? Have you been saved? 
Have you repented and believed the gospel? I don't think there's any story in scripture that better illustrates the identity of God the Father than the prodigal son. I had one professor in college who thought this was Jesus' favorite story. The story about the father who had two sons. And we know it well. One of the sons wanted his inheritance early. He left the father. He went out on his own and spent it on being drunk and parties and all of these things that led to his demise. He rejected the love of the father. The older brother stayed back and was with the father. And I want to pick it up in the middle of the story. In verse 17, it says, But when he came to himself... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. In this story, the son expects what we would expect from an earthly father, that he's just going to be a servant, that he's lost the love of his father. And in verse 20, it says, And he arose and came to the father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the, father, the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Quickly bring the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. And just from that passage, we see the heart of God the Father. That for us who were dead, who rejected him, when we come to ourselves, when we repent and believe the gospel, he celebrates in heaven because we've been made alive, because we've been found. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are as God the Father. We thank you for the spiritual blessings you've given us in Christ, salvation, redemption, all of these things that we talked about this morning. We thank you for your adoption, how we've been adopted as sons, how that gives us a new identity. God, help us to worship you as we should. Help us as we think through these issues. These aren't easy, but they are good things for us to think about. And ultimately, we want these verses to remind us of who you are and how we can better praise you. So be with us as we go from this place. In Christ's name, amen.